0: Welcome to Bible Study. It's great to have you with us today. It's always a pleasure to open uh, the Bible and to learn. Today, we are going to talk about playing God. This is a quite interesting topic. I'd like to introduce our panel for today. Brenton, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Nick, looking forward to sharing with our folks. And Joe, it's good to have you with us also.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Len, thank you for joining. Thank you, Nick. And hello, listeners. And Helen, it's very good to have you on board.
2: Thank you, Nick. It surely is a blessing for all of us.
0: Marek, it's our facilitator for today. Thank you for joining us, Marek, and preparing this uh, Bible study. Thank you. I look forward to a very challenging study. Look, it's... um, One of those things, if we open the Bible and allow the Bible to speak, I think we'll be guided into the right direction. And let's proceed with this, uh, and Marek, I will uh, hand it over to you. Thank you. Today we are specifically
3: looking at Isaiah chapter 13 and 14, exploring the idea of judgment. But in our discussion, we will make reference to passages from chapters 10 all the way through to chapter 27 and also draw certain texts from other sections of Isaiah. It's a fascinating study, but a challenging one. And one of the reasons it is challenging is that we both look at the literal city of, of Babylon, uh, of, uh, of Assyria, and so forth. But we look at parallelism and the symbolism that is also used throughout the Bible where Babylon refers to a spiritual political, and commercial power. So it'll be interesting to see how we can bring these different uh, parallel themes out of our discussion and study today. But uh, but the thing that I would like to focus on briefly before we uh, have our opening prayer is just the title of the lesson. The title of the lesson is Playing God. Now, panel members, uh, this can have various meanings. Uh, it's a fairly broad concept that has both theological implications and can even touch on certain scientific notions and concepts. I'm just wondering whether some of you would like to comment on on the notion of playing God. Len, go ahead.
4: Okay, well, I don't know, listeners, if you've ever heard of somebody called Ilya Ivanov. He was a Russian biologist. And he wanted to prove that God did not exist and that evolution was king. And so he tried to cross apes and man. He tried it with chimpanzees, male chimpanzee sperm into a, into a woman. It failed. He tried it the other way, male sperm into a female chimpanzee. It failed. And then he tried it with orangutans. It failed. He tried to play God because God made everything after its kind. And I see this as one example of somebody trying to play God. Just a quick one. Anyone who wants to change God's laws to modify God's laws is playing God. And there are plenty of people who've done that.
3: Good. Helen, you have a comment.
2: I think you can see it right through the world at the moment, you know, following on from what Len just said, I remember the cloning side. Did they not clone and they, they got ended up with Dolly? Mm-hmm. Wasn't, didn't that come in oh. somewhere? And also, you know, they're, they're now playing with geoengineering, changing the planet, seems unnatural against God, artificial intelligence, genetic modification. They all come in where people are seeking power I can't judge their motives, but I guess um, many of them think that they're going to improve the planet, Uh, sadly, especially when they start playing around with humans. Defective uh, babies born because of what they're doing. And, um, yeah, it's sad when you think about it, isn't it?
5: Mm. Brendan, you have a comment. Yeah, just quickly, uh, Marek, it's rather interesting. We live in the age of COVID-19 I was doing a little bit of study. The New English Journal of Medicine last year on the 23rd of the 3rd, which is around about the time that COVID-19 really started to break on the world, issued some ethical guidelines in regard to how doctors should treat patients who present and are discovered to have COVID-19. It's interesting that one of their recommendations is that we don't adopt the policy of first come, first served. They suggested that uh, we adopt the policy of having a look at the age of the individual and the likelihood of survival. Uh, If you study the Italians' experiment or the the Italian uh, principles, it's very much the same. In other words, what we're facing in the world at the moment is doctors and nurses and professional people having to make decisions perhaps as to who may live and who may die. And I find that very, very interesting. Yes, yes, it is. Joe, would you like to comment?
1: You know, we can accuse people of playing God and sometimes we are put in a position where we may have to make decisions that, you yeah, stretched resources need to, you know, how to best use them. So sometimes we can be a little bit hard on people. I guess the motivation is an important factor is, you know, am I playing God for my own pleasure? Am I playing God for increasing my own power? Um, bank balance. Um, so, look, I guess there is a factor of motivation in why we do what we do, and it doesn't have to be an organisation. Sometimes I can play God in my own, well, in my those in the lives of those who are closest to me, um, or those that I work with. So, it's definitely a lot of food for mm. thought, isn't there, about the role of playing God and how far how far do we take it? Let's yeah. not look too far away. Sometimes we could,
0: yeah, sometimes we could do that too. Yes. Nick, you have a comment. Yeah, I'd just like to say that, you know, we mentioned here people who try to play God who may not even believe in God, or certainly they don't believe in God. My concern is when we try to play God, pretending that we believe in God and knowing God. And I'm thinking of a passage in the Bible when Jesus was commissioning, Apostle Peter to look after the church, to grow the church. And that passage you may remember, whatever you will bind on earth, it will be bound in heaven from uh, Matthew 16. What I would like to mention on this regard is that my concern is when Christian believers, organizations will take that role to that extent to play God on earth. That's Mm. my concern.
3: Okay, good. Thank you. The term is generally uh, used in reference to people who try to exercise great authority and power. And of course what we find when that happens we witness the greatest atrocities, bloodshed. You know, we saw that during the Holocaust. We we saw that throughout uh, uh, periods of ethnic cleansing on different continents, different places. Sometimes it was based on on ethnicity, sometimes on religion. And so these are abuses of power. And, of course, what we will learn from the lesson today is that God will ultimately bring to account any individuals, any cities, any nations, any institutions who abuse power. Because with that abuse of power, we see injustice and we see meddling in things that are strictly the prerogative of God. So before we enter into our study, I would like to invite us all to bow our heads in prayer, and uh, I would uh,
5: ask Brenton, would you kindly lead us in prayer? Certainly, uh, Mary. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word. Help us to recognize a couple of things, that we serve a God who knows everything, who knows the end from the beginning, who is in control of the events of this world, even though at times we may doubt that. We do know that um, God has promised that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we deal with um, these issues in our study today, help us to remember that um, in our own lives, we can pay God at times. And I pray that you'll forgive us. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to always be looking to you for the source of our wisdom, for the source of our decision making, for the source of our strength and the source of our action. We thank you that you have promised all of these things in the book of James, where you've said, he that is without wisdom, let him ask and God will give it to him abundantly. May we be, as a panel, be given wisdom today as we share this message in Jesus' name, amen.
3: Thank you. Our lesson study begins with a uh, memory text which comes from Isaiah 25, uh, verse 9, uh, a beautiful, positive affirmation of faith in God. Len, would you kindly read and comment on our memory text?
4: Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him, and we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now, the book of Isaiah was written in an age of turbulence in the Middle East where uh, there were wars and attacks and there were governments that were not very effective. I refer to the government of Ahaz when he was king of Judah. You know, I was thinking a bit when Barack Obama was touting for presidency of the United States my son and his wife and now some of our grandchildren live in the United States, and there was great hopes that Obama would be the salvation of the United States of America. Well, he did some good things, but I think the people overall were disappointed. And then came Donald Trump, who was going to make America great again. I think many people were disappointed. And now we have a new president. And I think Although they might patch up a few things here and there, there will be a disappointment. However, as is pronounced in this verse, this is our God. We have trusted in him and he will save us. The point of this is we can put our trust in princes, in governments, in kings, in earthly powers. They will always disappoint the only sure thing that we can uh, have for our salvation is our God. Uh, I'd like to stress this very much, listeners. Don't put your trust in governments and things like that. They will only disappoint. It's only God who will do what we really
3: need. Thank you. It's uh, it, it's fascinating to to kind of reflect on the fact that Isaiah was probably one of the most unpopular individuals in his own time because everybody looked to other powers, other nations to rescue them, to, uh, to bring relief. But here Isaiah stands out as one who distrusts alliances, distrusts these superpowers. Instead, he holds up God as being the one who will save them. And, of course, these words brought tremendous comfort to the poor, to the oppressed, to the helpless, those who were trusting in God, but it seemed that everything was working against them. And I think another point that is worth highlighting in all of this is that when we look at the writings of the prophets, their messages oftentimes begin with identifying sin. Uh, They continue with warnings of impending judgments, but they always conclude with messages of hope. And so in today's uh, study, as we look over the chapters uh, that we will consider, we see exactly that. We see the doom and the judgments, the oracles, prophecies against different nations that uh, God at times used as part of his judgments, but nations that have overstepped their use of power. And ultimately, we come back to the firm rock the God of our salvation, the God who is uh, the only one who controls history and who brings relief and and restoration. So this is a pattern that we'll see uh, repeat itself as we study different passages from Isaiah. So today we focus on the nations and empires to whom the kings of Israel and Judah turned for help instead of relying on God. And, you know, when we see all the bloodshed and the brutality, I can't help but think that this is the direct outcome of the fact that Judah and Israel trusted in military power, in the art of politics, where faith in God was supplanted by self-reliance and trust in chariots and military boots. And, you know, today we have nations, both secular and Christian nations, where I think there is the great risk and tendency to rely on their military power rather than the Christian principles that undergird these nations. And so when we look at the prophet Isaiah, who very much stood alone, he demonstrated distrust of worldly powers, he opposed alliances with pagan nations, and he pleaded for the kings of Judah in Israel to place their trust in God. I really appreciated a comment that Abraham Heschel makes in his book, Prophets. And I want to share a quote here with you. Reliance on the world power meant a demonstration of the belief that man, rather than God, weapons rather than attachment to him, referring to God, determined the destiny of nations. From our study today, we will see that that is absolutely incorrect, that in the end, God is the sovereign power. So subservience to pagan Assyria, Babylon or Egypt was not what God desired for Israel and for Judah. It meant their accepting their gods, cults, it involved them in military operations and reliance upon these nations meant denial of God's power over history. So today, as we begin our study, I want to look at another question. Because we are focusing on judgments of God against these nations, nations of Assyria, Babylon, Tyre, Damascus, and so forth, I want to ask the question, panel, do you feel that these nations were also important to God, and did God give these nations, these nations that were doomed, did he give them an opportunity to change, to be different, to recognize God as being the righteous and just God. Would you comment on that, please? Uh, Brenton, would you have any comments?
5: Yes, certainly. Uh, Before I comment on it, Marek, just very quickly, I'd like to comment on uh, what you said earlier on about Isaiah pleading with the king to uh, trust in God. Now, we have a nation on earth today known as the United States of America, and I believe on their coins they actually have, In God We Trust. And there's a certain irony in all of that, because if you study military history, you will realise that the gross national product or the percentage of gross national product that America spends on the military is greater than Russia and China combined. I find find a certain irony in all of this when here we have a nation that professes to believe and trust in God, who is the only superpower on Earth. And yet uh, they're, they're trusting in their weapons and that. Uh, here we find three nations mentioned, Assyria, Babylon and Tyre. I'll comment just briefly on each of them. In the book of Jonah, God sends Jonah to Assyria. He sends him with a message that in 40 days, Assyria or Nineveh will be destroyed. Now, Nineveh was a city of 120,000 people, which in those days was very large It had a circumference of the walls of 13 kilometres. It was a most interesting place. He went throughout the city in chapter 3 and proclaimed this message, that in 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. And you find Marik in verse 9 of the same chapter, which I won't read for brevity's sake, uh, the king commanding everybody to put on sackcloth and ashes. He said, "'It may be that the God of heaven will look down favourably upon us.'" There seems to be some recognition here, even by a heathen monarch, as to who the God of heaven is. In chapter 4, right at the end of the chapter, we find um, Jonah petulantly uh, sitting underneath a um, gourd or a vine because God hasn't destroyed Nineveh in 40 days. Um, He must have been the most unlikely uh, missionary that God ever sent in the Bible, I think. And God says to him, should I not have mercy and compassion on the people of Nineveh, wherein there are 120,000 people together with many sheep and cattle. God even has compassion on the animals. I find that a very, very interesting comment. So did he give them a chance? Yes. Then we come to Babylon. I'll only touch on one text in Babylon. We have the story of Nebuchadnezzar for us in chapters 1 to 4, but in chapter 5, Daniel is called in to um, interpret some writing that is on the wall of the king's palace. And he talks to um, Belshazzar, who is a great-great-grandson, basically, of Nebuchadnezzar and says this. He says, your father Nebuchadnezzar was humbled because of his pride and he acknowledged the um, God of heaven. However, you knew all this, but you did not acknowledge God of heaven. Therefore, you were weighed in the balances and found wanting. And of course, that night Babylon fell. In the case of Tyre, which was a neighbour of Israel, I believe that there would have been opportunities uh, for them to know the true God. Uh, Tyre was a great trading centre. There was a lot of shipping and commerce going through Tyre. And I believe they also were given an opportunity. So I have to go back to to First Peter 3.10, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance.
3: Mm. Thank you, Brendan. I appreciate the comment. Uh, there's another passage of Scripture in Ezekiel 18.23 that I would like for us to highlight. Helen, would you be kind enough to read that passage for us?
2: Yes, surely. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Uh, Ezekiel 18.23 says, Do you think that I like to see wicked people die? says the sovereign Lord. Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. And if I could just please do a, a parallel text, Ezekiel 33, 11 says, as surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. Turn, turn from your wickedness. So people of Israel, why should you die? You know, God is perfect love, but he also dispenses perfect justice. And um, when I look at this, I think, oh, right, okay, perfect love causes him to be merciful to those who recognize their sin and turn back to him, but he cannot overlook those who willfully sin. Mm, And wicked people die both physically and spiritually. And um, God doesn't take any joy in their deaths. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He would prefer for us all to turn to him and have eternal life. And, you know, likewise, we ourselves must not rejoice in the misfortunes of the non-believers. Instead, we should do all in our power to restore faith to them as well.
4: In the um, paraphrase version of the Bible, the message by Eugene Peterson, there is a phrase that really impressed me. It says this, God is in the business of putting things right. Now, what Helen's just been speaking about, God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. It's his uh, will that people turn to him and thereby enjoy uh, his goodness and the benefits that he gives. Nevertheless, God does use human agencies, whether they be individuals or whether they be uh, countries or empires, to use as punishing machines, if you like, in order that those people who are being punished will come to their right senses and turn back to him. That's his uh, intention all the time. Mm -hmm. Now, my wife often spends a lot of time on the telephone speaking to people overseas, people, uh, good friends, and people like that. And a friend said to her the other day, I can't read the Old Testament. It's too gory. Well, when you look past the gory to the glory, what God would like these people to achieve in their lives, it's a different story. So it's gory glory and a different story, and that's
3: what God wants. right. Thank you. Thank you, Len. Interesting play on words. Um, No doubt in our minds from a study of the word of God that God equally loves the Assyrian, uh, the Babylonian, uh, the person of whatever cultural background, even though he chose the nation of Israel, to be special light bearers throughout history. He loved the people of all the other nations as much. He oftentimes used them as tools in his own hands for purposes of discipline, etc. So I think we need to bear that in mind as we now focus on the judgments that were to befall some of these nations. And so when we look at chapter 10, we come to the first of the woes. And and here uh, we look at at verse 5 of chapter 10, and it says, Woe to the Assyrians, the rod of my anger in whose hand is the club of my wrath. The Assyrians were the first ones against whom God pronounced these judgments. And there are specific reasons why he did that. Len, I'm just wondering whether you might be able to shed some light uh, on why God pronounced judgment against Assyria. God's
4: intention is that everybody should be saved, that everybody should turn to him. Now, he used the Assyrians to attack various other nations, including Israel and Judah, in order that people would turn back to him. But it didn't end there. He also wanted the Assyrians to to turn to him. Now, they were a particularly bloodthirsty, cruel people, And uh, they were very successful in their campaigns against other countries. But God wanted them to turn to him too. And so he pronounced judgment on them because of what they had been doing. For example, in verse 7, where God sent the Assyrians to punish the other people, the Assyrians took things into their own hands. And it says, this is not what he, referring to the Assyrians, This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, put to an end many nations, and that's what the Assyrians did. Right. But Mm. following on from what you just said, Mary, God is not willing that any should perish. We're reminded of that in the New Testament, Mm. and this applied back then even to this group of warlike, cruel people. He wants bad people to
3: become his people, to become good people. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And, and of course, when we look at, uh, at verse 12, God says, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of whose hand? My hand I have done this, by my wisdom, because I have understanding, I removed the boundaries of nations. I plundered their treasures. Like a mighty one, I subdued their wings. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? The passage is just filled with all of these eyes where I have gathered all the countries. I have the wisdom. I have the knowledge. And, of course, it leads us to ask the question, did Assyria play God? Even
1: though Assyria, the king of Assyria, the power of Assyria was used by God to bring Israel into, you know, to wake them up. The king of Assyria, like the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, it was all about me. I, I, I. And so he was punished for his arrogance. It's a characteristic that goes right back, right back into eternity, doesn't it? With the... uh, with satan with lucifer star of the morning and so this focus on i did it my i did it by my own virtue by my strength rather than saying god has given me this god has given me the strength or wisdom we tend to take the credit to ourselves and this king was doing this he was taking the credit to himself so in that sense god was punishing the arrogance and the self-reliance and the um, self, self-aggrandizement.
3: I, I sense that you almost uh, uh, said the phrase, I did it my way, but you hesitated there for a moment. <laughs> famous words, oh, but, yeah. you know, but isn't that typical of humanity? Yeah. We like to do it our way. And, uh, and, of course, the issue of pride comes through so clearly, both in relation to Assyria, in relation to Babylon, and later on in our discussion, we will focus where that concept of pride comes from. Helen, Brenton, and Ben Len.
2: In listening to what you were reading before, Mary, um, that was from Isaiah 10, it was very obvious that the Assyrians were arrogant, proud of the victories that God actually permitted And they thought they had accomplished everything in their own power. Our own perspective can also become distorted by pride in our accomplishments. We need to be careful if we do not acknowledge God to be in control of our lives, working out his promises, we are also bound to fail. But I'd like to refer to the next two verses after which you are reading, if I may, from the New Living Translation, because it talks about instruments. And um, no instrument or tool accomplishes its purpose without a greater power. For example, it says, But can the axe boast greater power than the person who uses it? Is the saw greater than the person who saws? Can a rod strike unless a hand moves it? Can a wooden cane walk by itself? Therefore the Lord, the, the Lord of heaven's armies, will send a plague against Assyria's proud troops, and a flaming fire will consume their glory. And, you know, when you think of it, Assyrians were actually a tool, if you like, in God's hands, but they actually fail to, re- to recognise it. And when a tool boasts of greater power than the one who uses it, it is in danger of being discarded. So we too are only useful to the extent that we allow God to use us. And if God has given us resources and special talents, we mustn't regard them as our own creation or um, special privilege. We must give the glory back to God.
5: Just quickly, um, Marek, on this one, it's it's rather interesting. With Assyria, which we're looking at at the moment, if we were to go further into the book of Isaiah, and we will in a future study, but I'll touch on this because it's relevant to what we're doing now. We have a king called Sennacherib who comes along and he gives a message to the then king of Judah, Hezekiah, saying, do not think that you can trust in your God that he will deliver you. Right. Who of the gods of Savaim, um, and he names about uh, 10 cities or countries, who of those gods ever delivered them, delivered them out of my hand? Don't delude yourself into thinking that your god will deliver you out of my hand yeah, either. Yeah. Now, the Greeks have a word for this, Marek, as you know. It's called hubris. Yeah. It's the excessive um, self-confidence. Yeah. And in Greek mythology, those who exercised hubris were brought to judgment. Even though that's a pagan philosophy, I find it interesting because in modern society you hear the word hubris quite a lot. Mm. And um, I think the message is very, very clear here. As Helen said, God is using Assyria for a purpose, but they do not recognise this purpose. They only recognise the purpose of plunder and of subjugation. Mm. And I think Nebuchadnezzar had trouble with this concept, And um, it took some time before he acknowledged the God of heaven in Daniel chapter 4. I think today we need to recognize that any accomplishment we do is based on what value the Lord places on us and the power that he has given us. Mm. But unless we acknowledge him as the source of all that power and acknowledge him as the person who is directing affairs, we too could fall into the same trap.
3: Thank you, Brendan, and you used the example of St. Herb, how quickly he came to a miserable end. Len, you had a comment. That reminds me of
4: text in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, where the Apostle Paul, although he was a very, very successful missionary, he says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, so what we're talking about here with these with this Assyrian kingdom is mm. they took all the credit on themselves. Right, right. Nebuchadnezzar stood on top of the uh, Hanging Gardens wall and says, "Look, isn't this great Babylon which I have made?" Well, mm. took quite a few lessons for him to learn that God gave him mm. the commission and the ability to do that. Therefore. The glory must go to God, and I think that's an important lesson that Mm -hmm. we need to understand, and I'm talking about you too, listeners, as we go through
3: life. Mm -hmm. And what a patient, persevering God we serve. When you look at the Mm -hmm. example of Nebuchadnezzar, amazing, amazing how far God would go to give that uh, individual an opportunity to ultimately acknowledge uh, the rightful sovereign. Joe, you had a comment.
1: But I was just going to say that, you know, it's probably worth mentioning maybe that the Assyrians did God's will, but they enjoyed themselves too much and took it way too far. And and for that reason, also, God was very unhappy with them.
3: Good. Well, this is a fascinating discussion. I mean, we could go on for quite some time. But let's look at the next oracle, the oracle against Babylon. Now, Babylon admittedly was the superpower, it became a superpower. It wasn't the superpower at the time when Isaiah made this statement and this prophecy about uh, about Babylon. Uh, I'm fascinated by the fact that Babylon means the gates of the gods. Let's have a look at several passages here that uh, relate to Babylon. And, uh, and when we look at, uh, at Isaiah... Isaiah refers to Babylon as being the jewel of kingdoms, a centre of power, a centre of education and uh, and culture. Again, a power that God used uh, for his own purposes, but ultimately God pronounced a judgment against Babylon because, again, Babylon played God.
2: I think it was interesting, as you said, that Isaiah called Babylon the jewel of kingdoms, you know, the the big center and it was in that day. It was a great place. But you know, when we look at uh Daniel and the prophecy in Daniel, Daniel two and three, there was an image that was erected. Now the many there were many images at that time in the land of Babylon, as we know. And Nebuchadnezzar had this dream and Daniel interpreted it and he told him what this big image was. But the thing about this was that There was only the gold that represented, the head that represented Babylon. The rest represented other nations. And then Nebuchadnezzar had in mind that he was going to build a big statue, a great big statue. I think it was about 90 feet high or something. And, And his idea that he decided to do this was, I read it was also nine feet wide, so it must have been huge. It was a strategy that he was trying to do to unite the nation and solidify his power by centralising worship. And when he he made or his heralds made an announcement that when the musicians started, they um, everybody had to bow down. Now, I thought it was interesting that when you go through this prophecy and you go through this, these two chapters, two and three of Daniel, he was horrified when they came and said three Hebrews had not bowed down. And here we see his pride. He said um, in verse four, three, verse fourteen, "Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up?" That's absolute pride, isn't it? And even though he gave them a chance to repent, they actually said, "No, we wouldn't. We won't. We'll, you know, if you want to burn us, that's fine. God wants." Um, he will save us, if not, we will serve God only. And he he threatened them with this blazing furnace. And he actually even commented to say, what God will be able to rescue from my hand? Can you get that? The arrogance that was coming mm. through. Nebuchadnezzar thought that he had absolute power. Mm. And uh, that was part of his downfall. Fortunately, he did repent later, but that was part of his downfall.
3: Mm-hmm. In- interesting. You know, we we refer to Babylon as, as the gates of the gods, and and the very first time that term is used, it was used in relation to the Tower of Babel, uh, where mankind built a tower so as to reach heaven, so as to establish a new world order that would rebel against God, and so that's the first mention. But then later on, as 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 you have identified, Helen, the great golden statue and uh, and so forth, where where Nebuchadnezzar wanted to establish a kingdom that would last forever. These were all signs of rebellion against God. Joe, coming to Isaiah chapter 14 and verses 12 to 14, would you read those passages and comment on them, please?
1: Before I, before I do, Marek, it's probably worth mentioning that when Nebuchadnezzar erected this all-gold statue it was in, in in direct conflict what God had foretold would happen. He said that after you, Nebuchadnezzar, shall come another kingdom, not as great as yours, and then another kingdom and another kingdom. And here is Nebuchadnezzar saying, no, that will not happen. My kingdom shall go right through forever and ever. And therefore, I will create this statue and it'll be all gold because it will be all me. It's all me. (laughs) In addition to challenging God, well, you know, who can save you from my hand, as Helen so beautifully put it. But just going to Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, we have the beautiful words, if you like, but It's all beautiful because it's poetry. And here he's addressing Lucifer, but also at the same time, he's addressing the king of Babylon. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful poetry if you read on, but um, it tells us that the problem here is that there was this aspiration to be like the Most High, craving the power of the Most High but not his character. Hmm. And, you know, those who, and and of course the fall of Lucifer, but the fall of King of Babylon, anyone who raises themselves up and puts themselves Hmm. in the position of God, plays God, is destined to the same fate. Hmm. Pride Hmm. comes before Hmm. a fall. And so we have here this being addressed to the King of Hmm. Babylon.
3: Thank you so much, Joe. Very clearly, this theme is coming through, this theme of 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 pride, extreme pride, where I will make myself like the Most High, playing God. Playing God is the central issue that we see here with each one of these powers, with each one of these nations and cities upon whom the judgments of God fall. Len, I was wondering... Would you kindly highlight some of the very specific sins that God identifies that were associated with Babylon? We find these listed in the whole chapter of Isaiah 47. Would you just perhaps pick out some highlights there just to give us some idea of what some of these specific sins were?
4: Of course. God says, I was angry with my people and desecrated my inheritance and I gave them into your hand and you showed them no mercy. You said, I will continue forever. The eternal queen. Now, Helen pointed this out too by Nebuchadnezzar making that golden image. Simply was a statement that this kingdom is going to last forever. And then God says, but you did not consider these things or reflect on what might happen. You've trusted in your wickedness and have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am, and there is none beside me. Now, this is a very significant statement. I am is a name that applies to God. When Moses asked at the burning bush, when God revealed himself to him, he said, who are you? Or he said, who shall I say sent me to the Egyptians? And God said, I am has sent you. So they basically were saying, we are as God. And then going on in verse 12, keep on then with your magic spells and with your many sorceries which you've laboured at since childhood. Perhaps you'll succeed. Perhaps you will cause terror. All the counsel you've received has only worn you out. Let your astrologers come forward, those stargazers who make predictions month by month. Let them save you from what is coming upon you. And then in verse 14, there's a, a pronouncement of doom. Surely they are like stubble. Mm-hmm. Now, this uh, business of astrology, that began in Babylon. And you know, there are a lot of people these days who look up their stars in magazines and newspapers to see what's going to happen to them. And I know a little bit about who writes these things, and it's a whole load of rubbish. So put your trust. God is saying to Babylon, you've been putting your trust in your astrologers and so on. It's a load of rubbish. You need to put your trust
3: in me. Thank you. Now, panel, I want to focus on on, uh, something very important that we must not overlook here, and that is a parallelism. That is is very clearly seen in these passages of scripture. Uh, we have Isaiah fourteen twelve to fifteen, how how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to earth. Then we have Ezekiel chapter twenty eight uh, verses two. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, This is what the sovereign Lord says: In the pride of your heart, you say, I am God. I sit on the throne of God. And then, of course, we move to the book of Revelation where uh, the term Babylon begins to take on a very significant meaning and symbolism portraying other entities, institutions, powers, which make exactly the same claim to being playing God. Uh, panel I want to focus on this a little bit more uh, would you like to comment when we begin to look at Revelation chapter 13 and we we see the portrayal of a of an antichrist a power that acts against God uh, when we uh, see references uh, to the city of Babylon in Revelation 17 uh, 18 and Babylon being the seat of the antichrist a harlot a mother of prostitutes what is the meaning of all of this? What is the root, the underlying problem, the underlying feature and characteristic of all of these powers, whether they be literal Babylon, Tyre, or uh, symbolic cities, as as referred to in the Book of uh, of uh, Revelation?
0: Would anyone like to comment on that, please? Marek, I would just like to read a couple of verses here first. I will read from a chapter. 13, verse 6, and it says, And he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And verse 9 says also this, Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. You see, already we are given this information here that we, we should not just quickly jump to conclusions. We have to study, to listen, to understand about the references. And here is talking about blasphemy. Now, Satan was the one who, uh, who did that in the first place. But are Christians today? We are not talking about those people who don't believe in God because Satan was in the, in the midst, you know, of the people who believed in God. I'm talking about Christians' organization who may blaspheme God, taking the role of God, because we are starting today playing God. This is my um, concern about these passages, and probably we can explore a little bit more on this. Thank you, Nick.
3: Len?
4: I'd like to just run a few things together. Revelation chapter 13 is a very interesting chapter. And I've actually done Bible studies with a large group of men who really have no idea. They're Christian men. They have no idea what, what all this is. The symbolism they haven't understood. And Babylon not just refers to the ancient political power, but I believe it refers to a religious power which exists in our time and will continue to exist for some time into the future. And Revelation 13 talks about the beast coming out of the sea and then the beast out of the earth. The beast out of the sea has been identified by the uh, reformers, the Protestant reformers, and many scholars, uh, Bible scholars these days, of referring to a large powerful religious organisation, where I suppose the words of Jesus apply where these people deceive those who, uh, who adhere to that organisation. Now, the Apostle Peter has come out, uh, and fairly bluntly he stated this, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Now, when Peter wrote this, the city of Babylon didn't exist, so it couldn't apply to the actual physical city of Babylon. It has to have a symbolic meaning, and uh, this meaning really refers to Rome because Mm -hmm. Christians did live in Rome. So it says, she who's in Rome. Now, I'd just like to uh, step a little bit forward here And I'd like to say that I think the Apostle Peter and the Reformers and many Bible scholars refer to Babylon, at least in part, to being the what we would call the papacy, that is, the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic religion. So Babylon, which is spoken about in Revelation in several places, is doomed because it is not of God. Mm -hmm. Although it might have an appearance of being of God.
3: Helen, if we could refocus again on Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 19. Clearly here we see a prediction that Babylon is coming to an end. will be over for Helen, would you kindly just share that text and and, uh, perhaps address that point?
2: Okay, with your permission, I'd like to jump down to verse 22 where it says, this is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. I myself have risen against Babylon. And then verse 23 says, I will make Babylon a desolate place of ours filled with swamps and marshes. I will sweep the land with the broom of destruction. I, the Lord of Heaven's armies, have spoken. To me, um, when, I, when I first came to this prophecy, of Babylon, I, I it just blew my mind. And looking in the history books to see what happened to Babylon assured me that God was in control, absolutely, because what he said came about. And he is in ultimate power and control of all history.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and we need, I mean, Israel did the same thing as uh, literally as, as what the others did. They also turned away. They made a mistake of being too proud to depend on God. And I think this is a big problem. We're also vulnerable to that same mistake. We need to remember that God is ultimately in control.
3: Yes, thank you, Helen. And it's very clear from these accounts that power fades quickly. And in the case of Assyria, Babylon and Persia and others, power was granted by God, but only temporarily for a purpose, to punish his wayward people by the time the Roman Uh, empire rose and the Roman general came to Babylon. There were no inhabitants there at all. And Isaiah verse 20 to 22 says she will never be inhabited. And it refers to the literal destruction of the city of Babylon. It will be destroyed as Sodom and Gomorrah, the two cities that were destroyed by fire, never to rise again. But in Christian eschatology, the book of Revelation also refers to the final and complete destruction of Babylon, the destruction of false systems of worship, of the power of evil and of Satan himself. And so we we see these wonderful parallels uh, between uh, the book of Isaiah, uh, the prophecies of the Old Testament, and the prophecies of the New Testament. So if we were to briefly summarize what we have said thus far, uh, it is very clear that all of these nations that have been identified in Isaiah, against whom God has spoken prophecy and, and, and oracles, they all played God. They all overstepped the mark. They were characterized by injustice, brutality, and oppression. But God said so far and no further, but. They defied God and pursued their own goals and their own ambitions. And it's interesting the way these people and these nations ceased to exist. Uh, when we read the very gory accounts of uh, of the way their women and children were were treated, it very much reminds me of the passage of scripture found in Genesis chapter nine and verse six: "Whoso sheddeth man's blood." by man shall his blood be shed. And of course, Jesus Christ himself elaborated on this principle when he says, all they, they take the sword, shall perish by the sword. And as we read these oracles, we see how history proves these statements to be true. But through all of these texts that we have looked at, I want to highlight a couple of other points. One of those points is, that all of God's disciplinary measures were redemptive in nature. So often in these passages we read that once the period of discipline has passed, God would still restore a remnant, those who were faithful to him. The spiritual Israel was to be restored. There is another um, important point uh, as a concluding point that I would like to discuss, the The uh, 13th chapter of Isaiah, in two verses, in verse 6 and 9, speaks of the Day of the Lord. What is the meaning of the term, the Day of the Lord? Would anyone like to comment on that, please?
5: I think the Day of the Lord, Marek, has um, mentioned some, as you um, have stated, over 20 times in the the, uh, Bible, And it generally refers to a period, I I guess we would call it today, if we're looking at it in modern terms, we would say that when the day of the Lord has come, we've actually reached a time where probation for an individual or probation for a nation has passed. In other words, God, in his wisdom, has determined that despite his pleas, despite his mercy, despite his compassion... This individual, or these uh, nations, or or uh, kingdoms, are determined to go their own way, mm. and because of we need to recognise that law in in the world is the revelation of God's character. A lawless world does not represent God's character, and therefore God has no choice, I believe, other than to step in and put an end to it by judgment.
3: Thank you. Clearly the day of the Lord refers to divine judgment. Each individual, each nation, each power has been granted a period of probation. Sometimes it's referred to as the day of man. It describes a day of salvation, a time when probation for man and individuals is still open. It still lingers because God wants to see as many saved as possible. But may we never take that opportunity lightly or or for granted. May we take certain lessons out of these studies that will be relevant to us today. One day when Earth's history has run its course and we stand in the presence of God, may we be among those who will say, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Dear listeners, I hope you have been blessed by this study. There were many chapters to consider. The issues were quite complex, but we have just barely touched on some of the important themes, and I hope you will be encouraged to study these topics in more detail in subsequent lessons. And now I'd like to invite Joe to have our closing prayer.
1: Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which unveils the truth and reveals where we can place our trust and faith not to trust in ourselves or other human organizations or human wisdom, because, Lord, we know that it all comes to nothing without you. Help us to be conscious of our dependence on you and to understand our own limitations. Help us to always lift you up. Be with us now as we go our ways and we study your word. Lead us into more and more truth. We pray for your constant presence in our lives. Help us not to play God in any sense of the word. In Jesus'
0: name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, everyone, for participating uh, today for this Bible study. May God richly bless you. And uh, we're inviting you to join us next time when we are going to learn a little bit more about the defeat of the Assyrians. And then we'll follow up another study about comfort my people. Until next time, may God richly bless you and keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus.